Hi everyone and welcome to The Interesting, a podcast on how to craft knowledge, skill and expertise. I'm your host, Renelle Noel, research scientist, writer and architect. Tune in, it's pretty interesting. Arlene Ducau is a creative engineer who makes technologies that examine relationships between built environments and ourselves. She's a principal at the Ducode Studio, a scientific and environmental design firm in Brooklyn, and the co-founder of Multima. At Multima, she developed her invention MindRider, a geospatial brainwave mapping system that has been profiled in Wired, The New York Times, and The Discovery Channel, to name a few. Arlene teaches at NYU and MIT on a range of topics, from multi-dimensional data visualization to digital fabrication and its cultural underpinnings. Arlene is someone I find interesting. Arlene, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am pleased to be on the show. So who is Arlene Ducau? You know, earlier today I was thinking that one one aspect of Arlene Ducau is that she's a loner. A friendly loner who likes other friendly loners. Not really a group joiner. I'm not really a joiner of groups. Creativity, making things, being an artist, it, I feel is core to my being. I, According to some de- definitions, I'm a first-generation child of immigrants. In other definitions, I'm a second-generation child of immigrants. Immigrants, uh, Both my parents, they married and had my eldest sister in the Philippines. And then they, my dad emigrated here in 1975, right before my sister was born. And then my mom and sister came along later. And then a few years later, I came along. And then a few years later, my younger brother came along. And we grew up in a suburb of Baltimore, Maryland called Coffeesville. <laughs> and when I was young, my first dream in life was to be a Broadway composer. I can't remember when that exactly came became my dream, but I loved musicals. <laughs> As a kid, uh, I liked to play piano. I took piano lessons for a long time. I wasn't very good at it. I also played the trombone and wasn't all that good at it either. But I received some encouragement around music composition. And not necessarily like, oh, you should pursue that, but like, oh, that was actually good from members of my family, who shall go unnamed. Maybe that was what I first started thinking about, becoming a Broadway composer. I am not a Broadway composer. (laughs) Growing up, what was your family's ethos around work and your learning, whether spoken or unspoken? That's a great question. My family is very serious about learning, especially in the summertime when you're on summer break (laughs) and there is no structured learning taking place. I remember that my parents would supply us kids with workbooks. (laughs) So English, but especially math workbooks. My parents were super hard I I would say there are some exceptions. 
My dad, who can be kind of intense, kind of put me through the paces to learn multiplication tables. As I recall it, I think I had one of those black and white marble notebooks. And I think they might still, at the time when I was a kid, they had all of these sort of useful little pieces of information in the back of the book, like metric to English, ruler conversions and multiplication tables. And I remember just kind of looking at it casually and my dad saw me looking at it. And then it became this test to learn every integer multiplication from zero times zero to nine times nine as quickly as possible. So that was super intense. (laughs) And then also in addition to getting good grades, our parents encouraged us to have at least one extracurricular activity For me, I had a lot of them because I was trying to, that was the only way I was allowed to really get out of the house. (laughs) There was seriousness around work, but that said, everyone in my family loves TV, except for me. Um, (laughs) There was a lot of TV watching, a lot of downtime. I asked Arlene to tell us about Multima. Multima is a New York City-based, specifically Brooklyn-based, MIT spinoff company, a startup that supports better spatial design based on human signals. So that's our tagline. And what that means is that we look at all kinds of human signal data. Initially, it was primarily EEG, electroencephalography, brainwave data. But since then, we've expanded to include human signal data from wearables like heart rate data, fitness data as well as data from small sort of microsurveys that are in our mobile app. So a big pile of human signal data and we, our app geolocates that data and then we analyze all of that human signal data using spatial tools. You can kind of think of a very simple thing that we do is making mood maps. We'll make a map of say a city and where pedestrians and cyclists are the most stressed out or a shopping mall and where shoppers are experiencing the highest levels of concentration. And so with those maps, then we investigate what could the causes of those mental experiences be. And the way that we investigate that is by analyzing our data against other more conventionally established data sets. What do you enjoy most about what you do? Two things. The first is working with people, working with people who are as enthusiastic about the world and technological possibilities as I am, or at least as curious, and who are willing to work to understand certain hypotheses. So that's the first thing, working with people. The second thing is getting to do a lot of different creative pursuits. So, you know, under the umbrella of Multimer. There's data analysis element. There's a mobile app development element. There's hardware engineering element. There's web design element. There's wearable, you know, hardware design element. And I find all those things to be pretty fun. I asked Arlene to tell us a bit about her experience of many times being the only woman of color in tech and startups. You mentioned MIT, so I'm going to use MIT as an example. 
I was experienced as a small business owner before I went to MIT, but I was not so experienced in, in the world of startup or even the world of, quote unquote, the world of tech. Now, I have I had come from more of the world of science, which is different from the world of tech. The world of startup, as I perceive it, and I think many other people would agree, and the world of quote-unquote tech is a lot more male-dominated than the world of science at this point, and more dominated by posturing. And yeah, I would argue modes of toxic masculinity. <laughs> However, seven years ago when I started at MIT, people weren't using the word toxic masculinity, the term toxic masculinity yet. But that was something that I encountered very strongly particularly in my department, MIT Media Lab. I was participating in a series of like, welcome new students activities in the spring. So this was several months before the real program was beginning. And one of the activities was a women's tea, a tea for new female students. And it was meant to be attended by current females in the department, including students and faculty members and staff members. And there was a small but loud contingent of men who protested over the existence of this women's tea. And they said, well, we're going to have like a male bar hop, a man's bar hop to protest this women's tea. And at the time, I thought that was ridiculous, but I didn't realize that it reflected a larger and pervasive misogyny in that department. And I came to realize that when I moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and you know, fully immersed in that department. And I realized that a number of women's initiatives that had been started had kind of fizzled out from, you know, this kind of pervasive misogyny. And at that time, I came to realize that at least for myself. And in that moment, I felt that I needed to do something for my own, <laughs> you know, ability to exist in that environment. But I couldn't really couch things in terms of gender. So I became really involved in the diversity committee to interact with more people who were experiencing bigotry in very similar ways, but for different reasons. And for me, that was a way to find strength against sort of this pervasive misogyny that was not just about gender. And it definitely extended to how I deal with being both a woman and a person of color in other kinds of bigoted situations. I asked Arlene what she learned from these experiences. This is what she said. I've had this conversation with enough people about bigotry in the world of startup, in the world of tech with enough people that I've realized how important it is, even if it doesn't seem very significant at the time, to just stay in the room. So I kind of equate it with the first time I went to, I am a yoga practitioner and I have a very good friend who is a hot yoga practitioner um, my good friend and I went to our first Bikram class and the instructors of um, this hot yoga class, uh, it, one of the things that distinguished Bikram from other kinds of hot yoga is like the temperature in the room was hot, like very hot, more than 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And the teacher said, as a first time student, 
the most important thing for you today is to just stay in the room. You may get to a point where it may be too hot for you to do the yoga pose that I'm instructing you to do. Just stay in the room. (laughs) That's something that I just kind of think about when I'm in situations, particularly networking or pitch or demo events that are very outward facing that involve meeting and talking to a lot of new people, is that even if I do come away feeling unfulfilled to a certain degree or that there was a lot of bigotry realized in whatever form, Just representing and staying in the room was enough for that day. (laughs) What do you think is at stake here? Is anything at stake? Oh, absolutely. I think so many things are at stake. I think a lot of people who are involved in the community, the, the MIT community or ecosystem, are trained to kind of think that they're in a special community. And I I actually do believe that they are. But at the same time, I think that there's an elitism around the notion of what people do at MIT. There's this phrase that I see used quite often in relation to MIT, in relation to startup, and in relation to tech. Phrases, inventing the future. I think it's a very silly phrase, but, you know, if you're going to take it at face value... If we're inventing the future, if the the future is being invented by the same old people that controlled society in the past, I think that's a very sad thing. I think you can kind of trace a line from inequality in terms of race, class, and gender and other kinds of categories to a lack of resources. If you have the same people hoarding all of the resources all of the time and inventing a future. I just think it's very sad when there's all this talk of innovation and there's a lack of discussion around who is innovation serving. Do you experience any internal conflict in these situations and spaces? All the time! In terms of outward-facing, public-facing situations and spaces, the Internal conflicts that I experience are really around representation and articulation. I think unfairly, a lot of times minorities are either expected to or expect themselves to represent the whole minority. (laughs) That's a little heavy. And so I think I have a tendency to feel bad or make myself feel bad if I don't really feel like I represented my minority. What unique experience, skills, qualities do you bring to the table? Something that might not be entirely unique. I actually gravitate to people who have this tendency as well, is that I don't tack too hard in a left brain direction or a right brain direction. (laughs) You know, in that I'm very interested in science, technology, engineering, and math, but then I'm also interested in the arts and humanities. And I feel that my practice involves both. And I know that this is the case with you, the case with my co-founder. I I don't think I'm very unique in that sense, but I, I think it is an asset to have in this domain. When asked about experiences that challenge her and how she overcomes them, this is what Arlene said. 
certainly still get nervous when having to give a presentation that I'm not used to giving or present to an audience that I'm not used to presenting in front of or where I think there is a strange power dynamic. And I would say that pitching to investors, it's a very strange power dynamic in the room. There's the power dynamic of money. Presumably an investor has a lot of money. And if you're pitching, you have no money. That's why you're pitching. (laughs) So there's that aspect. And then there's also the aspect of race and gender as well. The vast majority of investors, particularly tech-oriented investors, are male and are white. The vast majority of startups that are funded by venture capitalists are co-founded by people who are male and are white. (laughs) I think it's like a six, seven percent statistic for people of color, or maybe that's for women and even less for people of color. According to an article by Forbes in April 2018, just 17% of startups in the US have a woman founder. Even worse, 3% of all venture capital goes to female-led companies. And yet, according to a study by First Round Capital, companies with a woman on the founding team are outperforming all-male companies by 63%. And so you already know that there's kind of unconscious bias on the part of the investor if you're going to pitch to her or more likely him. So going into those kinds of situations where there is imbalance of power in many different kinds of ways, even though I know that, in a way, it makes me more nervous. And it makes me sort of irrationally more fearful. And I still find it difficult. I can tell myself in a rational sense that I'm not attached to any particular outcome and whatever happens, there are all these other mitigating factors that have nothing to do with me as an individual. But there's still kind of a lot of weight on those situations. And that said, I mean, I've done it a lot, both in a large audience setting and a small audience setting. And even though it's not enjoyable and I I don't really like to do it, I'll continue to do it if there is the possibility of opening doors for additional resources for my organization. And how does she overcome these challenges? I think at this point in my experience, a few things. So one, I do prefer to pitch to large audiences because I find it to be more efficient. (laughs) You know, I'd rather pitch to an audience of hundreds or thousands rather than taking a meeting, a hundred meetings or a thousand meetings with those individuals. (laughs) I don't find that to be very efficient. So I've overcome much nervousness around presenting to large audiences because I just think this is going to save me time. (laughs) I think as you become more experienced, you start to understand what opportunities are worth pursuing and what opportunities are going to take up more of your time and resources than you might actually get. So kind of the notion of return on investment, but in a more holistic sense. Any advice for other young women of color and other onlys who are interested in what you do? I would say it would probably be helpful 
not to do it completely on your own. Get to know or become aware of and maybe attend some events of organizations in your community that are developing programs in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, creative programs, et cetera, et cetera. Even if you find that you're not really much of a joiner, kind of a loner, having an awareness of these programs can be helpful in terms of one, learning, and then two, knowing what kind of resources might be available. So if there are machines that you'd like to have access to that you don't have access to through your home or school, knowing about, say, a makerspace in your town might allow you to make some stuff that you couldn't on your own. A lot of times aspects that women are sort of more conditioned to develop, so for instance, emotional intelligence, awareness of other people in the room, those kinds of qualities are not highly valued in society at large, but I think especially in the world of startup and tech. But I think those are huge assets. So if you are ever made to feel that you're less than because you are a woman or minority or the only person in the room, just know that you have so many assets that will serve you well if you just stay in the room. When you write your book, what's it going to be on? Okay, so I have three kinds of books in mind. The first book, and it's probably the easiest to write book because it's about my direct experience. As you know, Brunel, since I'm trying to tap on your amazing drawing abilities, working title is Sense, Sensors, and Scale. So it will be about the notion of how life forms sense external phenomena, looking at human senses, but then also looking at the senses of very large things like whales, very tiny things like microbes, and looking for the commonalities between the ways that we sense things, the sort of mechanics of those commonalities. And then we'll expand that to sensors and why do we use sensors and how do we apply the mechanics of senses, of biological senses to sensors. And then scale is the vehicle to shuttle around in understanding those commonalities. I'm also interested in publishing uh, creative writing fiction. As I've mentioned, I've, I've done a lot of writing about drag queens and maybe that won't ever get published. <laughs> I think drag queens are very brave in a lot of ways. I think sort of folks who transgress in terms of gender are very brave and fascinating in a lot of ways and sort of the 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 leaders of our society, actually. <laughs> and I was interested in looking at tech and startup through the lens of people who are transgressive in terms of gender, because I do think that the world of tech and startup and business in general is extremely gender normative. So I'm interested in examining those kinds of themes in fiction, but I don't have a chance to devote a whole lot of time to that yet. So I'm trying, I'm trying. And then the third book is A Guide to Sex for My 19-Year-Old Self, because I was pretty baffled back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Some of my takeaways from my interview with Arlene were that we should be serious about learning, especially during time away from school or time away from work, time that can be seen as downtime. 
this time can be used to catch up or to develop new skills. I've learned that we should never stop pitching. None of us have control over everything. We only have control over ourselves. And as long as we never stop pitching, we'll get there one day. And I also learned that we should stay in the room, no matter how hot, and that could be figuratively or physically, no matter how bigoted or tough that room might be, just stay in the room. That too is an achievement. Erlene, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share with us your knowledge and your experience. Thank you very much, Brunel. It is an honor to be on your show, specifically your show, your family to me too. And to everyone out there, keep crafting knowledge, skill, and expertise. Thanks for listening.